Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hey everyone, welcome back. Hey guys. So today we want to jump right into this case because it's an exciting one. For episode 3, we're going to cover a lesser-known unsolved murder case from 1966 in the town of Clifton, New Jersey. This bizarre case has an interesting group of questionable and unsavory characters and many twists and turns, which prove to be both fact and fiction. It is clear that understanding what the truth is is going to lead to the solving of the case, but that's been made impossible by Passaic County Prosecutor's Office of the time. There are only two things that are certain in this case. Two people were murdered, and no one was ever found guilty. Wow. Shocker. So Clifton, New Jersey in 1966 was like most blue-collar towns in America. They were dealing with the unrest from the ongoing conflict in Vietnam, and it's during the second trial of this case in 1969 that the draft is actually going to begin. Racial tensions were very high in Passaic County. As we enter the age of the civil rights movement, the county in northern New Jersey was a diverse one, which housed many affluent towns and lower income areas in close proximity to each other. An example of these tensions would be the Newark race riots of 1967, which were sparked by a police beating of an African-American man that led to 727 injuries and 26 deaths. Although Clifton was known as a high-income town in the 1960s, poverty and unemployment were reaching all-time highs in the surrounding areas of Passaic and Patterson. Although it seems as if it was another town dealing with the sweeping social changes of the 1960s and 70s, there was something a little bit more sinister happening in Clifton. It's something widely known amongst residents from this town who grew up during that time period. If you want to commit a murder, you do it in Clifton, New Jersey. During the 1960s and 70s, the town has the highest amount of unsolved murders in the state. Some attribute this to knowing the right people or being associated with the highly corrupt police forces or prosecutor's office, who was aligned with some questionable politicians, or the fact that the town was incapable of solving the high volume of crimes that were being committed. Of the many cold cases from Passaic County, one of the most intriguing is the Kavanaugh-DeFranco case. Although not discussed much today, it is an intense tale that at first involves counterfeiting, wife-swapping, pornography, but after the involvement of a well-known attorney, it more closely resembles a series you'd see on Netflix screaming of police conspiracy. Sounds pretty cool. It's a very interesting case. So at the heart of this case is a young couple, Judith Cavanaugh, 21, and her husband, Paul, 24. They live in a two-family house on Hazel Street in Clifton. Judith, a homemaker, is a petite strawberry blonde woman who met her husband at Clifton High School, which the two both attended. Paul was a tall, handsome man with brown hair and brown eyes, and he worked as a truck driver for a newspaper printing and distributing plant in nearby Garfield, New Jersey. Judith dropped Paul off at his night shift job on February 24, 1966. She was never seen again after this. Paul reported Judith missing after she did not return to pick him up at the end of his shift. When he returned home, his wife and their family car, a 1962 Corvair, was missing. That was the most ugliest car ever. I know nothing about what it looks like, so I can't say anything. 
Just take my word for it. Okay. The car was found set ablaze in the ironbound section of Newark. Judith was not found in or anywhere near the car. Not a very good section of town. No. No. That's where you hit a red light, you definitely don't stop. Nope. That was a quote from Bruce Springsteen. Oh, was it? Okay. I wouldn't know. Well, you're not from New Jersey. Two weeks after the disappearance, a man walking his dog found the body of Judith Cavanaugh in a gully near a local entrance to the Garden State Parkway. Her body was about 100 yards from her apartment. Judith was found naked from the waist down. Her high heels and cat-eye glasses were thrown down beside her. She had two bullet wounds to the head and strangulation marks on her neck. The autopsy showed no signs of rape, however. It was clear, though, that the body was dumped at the gully location and posed to look like it was a sex crime. Months would go by and there was no arrest. The police did not even have a suspect in mind. Judith Cavanaugh's mother, Mrs. Emily Marcone, grew very frustrated with police and began reaching out to local media, mainly the newspaper, The Star-Ledger. She offered a reward of $1,000, which in today's money is roughly like $7,500. The media attention and the reward being offered is going to put pressure on the police. This is when the prosecutor's office put Joseph Muccio in charge of the investigation. This is important to note because Muccio was a political protege of the Passaic County Republican big shot, Joe Bozzo. It really looks like Bozo, but it's really Bozo. Bozo the Clown? Yeah. okay. Bozo had a reputation as a crooked politician, and he was indicted on several bribery charges in the late 1960s and 70s. It was mainly that he took bribes from certain construction companies to do the road work throughout Passaic County. It was claimed that he had close ties with the New Jersey Mafia as well. So that's going to add another layer yeah, another to the mystery to this case. Uh, Muccio was assisted by the Clifton Police Sergeant John C. DeGroote in the early investigation of the murder of Judith Cavanaugh. During his early investigation to the murder, he found out some interesting details about the Cavanaugh couple. It was found out that Paul had been having several affairs. It was also discovered that during the previous New Year's Eve, so that's a few months before, that the couple had a four-way sexual relationship with the couple downstairs. Wow, we got some swinging going on. <laughs> yeah. That makes things like awkward because you live right upstairs from them. That is uh, too close for comfort for me. Yeah. Well, I hope... Always. As my dad says, you don't shit where you eat. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> By all accounts, this is something that only took place uh, one time. So when Muccio does this investigation, he's going to tell the media that the Kavanaugh's were involved in this wife-swapping club, and they would take pornographic pictures with the other couple, but no evidence was ever produced to substantiate such claims. I think it was just like kind of a one-time thing, but he kind of rolled with this idea and developed it into a subplot of the case. The further Muccio investigates, the more crimes he uncovers. He found that the Kavanaugh's were involved in a counterfeiting scheme with Paul's boss, Howard Matziner Jr. It is here that Muccio reveals an interesting cast of characters involved in this counterfeiting scheme. So the rest of the crime, there's going to be this crew of people involved in a counterfeiting scheme. So what I'm going to do now is just break down who the different people are, and then we'll go into the case and what happened. I think it'll be easier to tell you who everyone is first and then go into it. 
So the first character is Harold Matziner Jr. He's 31 years old, and he's the owner of Matziner Publications, which is responsible for printing and distributing for Wayne Today, which is kind of like a local newspaper. And it's like that those newspapers where like you hate that it gets into your mailbox and you just wind up throwing it out anyway. Yeah, it's really just like, oh, check out this local play. I mean, we don't care. Yeah, we don't care. 22 other smaller publications are also controlled by Matziner Publications. So he's a very wealthy man. He, along with his wife, Dorothy, live in an expensive home in Denville, New Jersey. And Denville is about 25 miles west of Clifton. Dorothy was 35 years old, and she was described as an attractive, thin, long-legged brunette. The next character is going to be Gabriel DeFranco. And DeFranco is going to go by his nickname of Johnny the Walk. Which is a pretty cool nickname. I mean, it's pretty cool. Maybe we should give you that nickname. Johnny the Walk. Johnny the Walk. (laughs) Well, he was called Johnny the Walk because one leg was shorter than the other, so he kind of like limped around. Oh. So I guess that's not really that cool. (laughs) He was a 42-year-old known counterfeiter, and he lived in Patterson, New Jersey, which is very close to Clifton. The next character is Vincent Carney, who's 26 years old, and he's an on-again, off-again salesman who was a known associate of DeFranco. So the two of them were definitely involved in this counterfeiting business together. So those characters, along with the two Kavanaugh's, were involved in a counterfeiting ring where Matziner and Kavanaugh would make the counterfeit money, and it would be distributed through DeFranco and Carney, so they're the main distributors, but the two wives were also involved in the distribution of the money. They would take the money to Roosevelt and Yonker racetracks, where they would place bets using the funny money and collect payouts of legit cash. So, Muccio had a stage set for the murder of Kavanaugh, but there are still a lot of holes. For instance, what's the motive? Why would this group want to kill Judith Kavanaugh if she's such a small-time player in the scheme? To fill these holes, Muccio is going to get a witness. Enter Jacqueline Natoli, 30-year-old. <laughs> Natoli has a long rap sheet which includes writing bad checks and selling a car that was not hers. So that's kind of her crimes. But the whole check thing, there's several of those crimes that she committed. So she was basically a known criminal within the area. On the stand to the grand jury on October 1st, 1966, the divorcee from East Rutherford tells a tale of brutal murder. Natoli claims that her friend, Johnny the Walk, was counterfeiting with the Kavanaugh's and the Matziners. She implies she was with them because of her relationship with DeFranco and Carney. So basically, that's how she knows this group. She was friends with DeFranco and Carney. It seems to be insinuated that she might have had a sexual relationship with either DeFranco, Carney, or both of them. That's what she seems to say her connection is. On the day of the murder, she states that herself, the two Kavanaugh's, Matsoner Jr., and Carney were in a crowd were crowded into a station wagon outside of a diner in Clifton. So I guess they had all went to the diner, but now they're all back in the station wagon. It was then that Judith Kavanaugh became irate about her husband's extramarital affairs. She claimed that she was going to tell the police about the whole operation. Natoli quoted her as saying, I'm going to the police and not the Clifton police. You can't threaten me about not being able to testify against my husband, because if I tell what I know, you will all go to jail. 
She states that Massiter tried to strangle the woman in the front seat of the car, but when he failed to do so, he hit her so hard that it knocked her out. While the woman was passed out, Natoli said that they dropped off Paul at his home and then they drove to Matsner's house in Denville. At this point, Carney drags her out into the woods behind Matsner's house. Natoli then claims that she hears a gunshot. They all walk out to the spot where Judith lie on the ground. Mrs. Matsner, Dorothy, holds a mirror up to her mouth to see if she's breathing. She is. It's then that Carney shoots her in the head one more time. They dump her body near her house at night and stage the scene to look like it's a sex crime. She also claims that John C. DeGroote, the sergeant that's helping with the investigation, was involved with the staging of the body. Wow. Yeah. So after that testimony, the grand jury hands out 11 indictments to all of those she named above and also to the mistresses of Paul Cavanaugh, thinking that they might have information on this. Even the couple downstairs gets indicted. Oh, wow. Even the swingers. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Not worth it. (laughs) Um, All people named by Natoli, however, claim that they have never met her before in their whole life. So everyone listed that we listed just now, they're all saying that they never met her? Never. Oh my gosh, come on. So now it's kind of just like, you can go one way or the other. Are you going to believe her in everything she says, or are you going to believe everyone else that says they never met her? Hmm. And what does her past tell about her? She does have a long rap sheet of... uh, Yeah, I mean, they're minor crimes, but if she's getting rewarded for saying this, can you believe what she's saying? Very true. Yeah. All right. But it gets better. Well, not better. It gets worse. But you know what I mean. At 1.30 a.m. on October 6th, 1966, five days after Jacqueline Tolley told her Goodfellas-esque tale, there's a knock on the door of a garden apartment to the door of Gabriel Johnny the Walk DeFranco in Patterson, New Jersey. Three men attacked DeFranco. When hearing the noises come from the altercation, a neighbor is going to look out the window and he sees DeFranco fall to the ground and the three men run into a car and drive off. The witnesses could not describe the car. DeFranco was described as grabbing his neck while scratching at his door to get back in. When police arrive, they find the body of DeFranco on his doorstep. His throat was slashed from ear to ear. That's a really shitty way to go. Yeah. After the murder of DeFranco, the Kavanaugh case comes to an abrupt halt. One of the key defendants has now been murdered. Investigator Muccio quickly connects the two murders. The other members of the counterfeiting crew were responsible for the murder of DeFranco because he was going to rat on them. How does Muccio know this? He's got a witness. And <laughs> That seems to be the trend. Yeah. Everyone has these... <laughs> so-called uh i'm doing air quotations you know credible witness here but they're all really shitty right every time he wants to kind of make a connection and he can't find a jump he finds a witness to make this connection for him of course the next witness that he finds is edward lenny a convicted robber who swears that he was present for the defranco murder a lesser charge with no jail time was offered in exchange for his testimony And by the way, Lenny actually tried to run away from the Clifton police station as he was trying to make his confession about witnessing the murders. What does that tell you guys? Kind of held under duress a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) 
In a sworn affidavit, Lenny states that on the morning of October 6, 1966, he went to DeFranco's home with Matziner, Carney, and DeGroote. Here's that police sergeant again. Matziner was to stay in the car while the other three men murdered DeFranco. Lenny says, Matziner states, let's make sure we don't screw this one up like we did with the broad. The three men then knocked on the door. Lenny said he was a lookout while Carney held him down, and DeGroote was the one who slit DeFranco's throat. When the men returned to the car, Matziner drove off, and he asked how it went. DeGroote replied, it's done. We got him. These two murders get massive media coverage. Local newspapers, as well as the New York Times, take a huge interest in the case, mostly because of the wild stories surrounding them. The case was kind of described as a counterculture murder, New Jersey style. Now, this is because the Kavanaugh's were described as being swingers and loose, so it's kind of a part of this big counterculture movement that was going on in America at the time. You know, like, like these dirty hippies and what they're involved in and their sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and that's kind of how, how the Kavanaugh's were explained. But then there's also this little New Jersey style of being, the mafia being involved. So it was very interesting, and it was something that everyone wanted to hear about during the time. Paul Kavanaugh is also quoted as yelling out to the media during the payment of his bail, I didn't do it. They think I did it, but I didn't. Even the prosecutor, uh, his name is John Theos, is quoted as saying this case is bizarre and weird, as well as the fact that it's one of the greatest conspiracies he had ever seen or had to try. One of the defense attorneys, however, is quoted as saying, all of this is Muccio's greatest fantasy not a greatest conspiracy. Another thing that will add to the sensationalism of this case is the fact that the rich Mr. Matzner is going to attain Effley Bailey to be his defense attorney. Bailey, who gained a reputation for being a skilled defense attorney, had gotten Sam Shepard a retrial and a not guilty verdict after being convicted of killing his wife in 1954. Bailey is also known for being the defense attorney for Albert, for Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, who through a plea deal was able to take the death penalty off of the table. Bailey basically wanted to take the death penalty off the table for DeSalvo, so he was able to maybe go back and do an insane, an insanity case, right. insanity plea. crazy. Yeah, because the judge wouldn't allow that in the first trial. Um, but DeSalvo ends up getting murdered, so... In prison. Oh, great. That's karma. So Bailey will later go on to defend other highly publicized cases, such as the Patty Hearst case, which is the first successful Stockholm Syndrome case, and O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson. Yes. Um, Bailey doesn't really play a huge role in this case. It's kind of just like they want his name involved on the dream team of lawyers O.J. had. So Bailey was permitted to defend Massiner and head up the defense team under something known as pro hoc vesse, which translates as for this occasion only, because Bailey actually only holds the bar in the state of Massachusetts. So he had to be granted special special permission to defend the Massiners in the state of New Jersey. But Bailey's goal was to have the case argued at the federal level arguing that there was no way that any of his clients could face a fair trial because of all the media coverage. Of course, he was denied. 
The judge ruled that they needed to exhaust the efforts at the state level first. The only thing the judge would allow, however, was that the jurors would be brought in from Hudson County. You know, thinking that, you know, maybe the jury pool isn't going to be tainted if they're from a different right, county. Right, as if it was coming from, yeah, Passaic County. Right. Right. But the thing is that Hudson County is so close to Passaic County, and also you're going to read about it in the news. That is true. I mean, it's all over the place. Right. At, <laughs> so it doesn't even do anything. At this time, the New York Times was covering it. Right. So people knew about this. The first trial that's going to be held is for the murder of Gabriel DeFranco. This is because the prosecution believes that if they can convict the defendants for the murder of DeFranco, then the jury would have to find them guilty also for the Kavanaugh case. So that's why the DeFranco case is going to be heard before the Kavanaugh case is, even though the Kavanaugh murder happened before the DeFranco murder. The defendants for the DeFranco murder are both Matsoners, Dorothy and Harold, Vincent Carney, and John DeGroote. While preparing his defense, Bailey states later that he was so overwhelmed by the gross injustice of the state of New Jersey was doling out to his clients that he needed to appeal to higher authorities. Other people are going to argue that it's the timing of this letter that's a little bit more of the gross injustice that occurs. On April 24, 1968, Bailey sends out a letter to the governor of New Jersey. He also sends a copy of the letter to every senator, representative, and assemblyman, and all 16 members of the American Polygraph Association. In total, this letter was sent out to 150 people. The timing of this was called into question because jury selection was to begin only a few weeks after the letters were this sent out. This guy's pulling out all the cards. <laughs> he really is. I mean, he's worth every penny. The letter reads as follows. I am writing to call to your attention a matter which I consider to be of the most serious consequence to the man I represent and the state of New Jersey. I am about to commence a trial wherein the prosecutor presenting the case is fully aware that the only witness he has intends to lie and give a fully fictional account of the murder allegedly committed by my client. Harold Matsoner of Denville, New Jersey, was indicted in June 1967 for the murder of Judy Kavanaugh, and in October of 1967, for the murder of Gabriel DeFranco. I have represented him <laughs> since the first indictment. I have never in any state or federal court seen the abuses of justice, legal ethics, and constitutional rights such as the case involved. It was apparent from the start that the witnesses to each murder were persons utterly without human value. Both are convicts, and both have been pressured or bribed by the prosecution to give their story and thus knowingly jeopardize the lives of five completely innocent people, all of whom have been cleared by polygraph tests administered by nationally recognized experts. Just a side note here, at this point, Effley Bailey had went to went through a lot of training with the polygraph. Like He was one of the first persons people to be involved in this new polygraph testing that was coming out. So in the 1960s, it was either people believed that they were 100% accurate or they didn't believe it at all. One trial involves three defendants and one, inv and one involves four. Two, including my client, are the defendants in both cases. It was my original intent that the trial itself be 
the medium of exposing this disgraceful situation. However, some weeks ago, there suddenly appeared to be a special prosecutor in the person of James Dowd. It was apparent from our first encounter that this man was a very competent and also very ethical lawyer. The DeFranco trial was scheduled for April 22nd as day certain. A week prior to the commencement, Mr. Dowd attempted to obtain a continuance to further investigate the case with which he had become recently acquainted. What happened was Dowd was supposed to take over the case from John Thevos. So what Bailey's referring to is now a new prosecutor came in and he wants a continuance. I objected and his motion was denied. Sensing that Mr. Dowd's purpose might serve some more noble value than the purposes of his predecessors, John Thevos, I conferred with him privately in the presence of his equally honest and competent assistant, Richard McGlynn. Upon his representation, one, that he was in charge of the case, two, he had a sincere desire to determine whether or not his chief witness was a perjurer, I reversed my original stand and assented to the continuance. Mr. Dowd was good with his word. He did determine that Edward Linney, the alleged eyewitness, had in fact offered a completely perjured story, and that he had been assisted in its concoction by the officials of the state of New Jersey. Oh my god. This is crazy. Yeah. First of all. Like, first first of all, (laughs) New Jersey's corrupt as fuck. Yeah, it is. It's so crazy. Especially in the 1960s. Oh my god. Mr. Dowd wished that the indictment immediately be dismissed and that the defendants be cleared of all suspicion. The defendants agreed, but before this could be done, John Thevos is going to come back into the picture and he becomes once again the prosecutor. Thevos is going to make contact with Edward Linney and as a result, which he turned around once again and reverted to his false story. The state of New Jersey now proposes to go forward with this trial in order that those officials guilty of felonious conduct may be to some degree protected. My client, therefore, is offered the opportunity to fall into the classic American syndrome of the damnation of an acquittal. I do not propose that this should be allowed. So basically what happened was Dowd was trying to do the right thing because he admitted that Linny was lying and then Thevos is going to come in and not allow him to try the case anymore. Unbelievable. So the letter's continuing. Should this trial proceed as is presently planned, the stench arising from it will hold the state of New Jersey up to ridicule such as has beset no organ of government since the abolition of the Star Chamber. Although there would be a certain pleasure in bringing to book these officials in the spotlight of a murder trial, I believe it to be in the best interest of my client to urgently request that an immediate investigation be made to determine whether or not Mr. Dowd is being forced by orders from superiors to offer in an American courtroom a man he knows to be a complete and utter liar." The money and effort of which the taxpayers will be defrauded in such a trial could much better be spent in conducting the investigation that would lead to the disbarment and the incarceration of those responsible for this travesty. The press has been throttled in this case to the extent that the public is almost wholly aware of what is being perpetrated. As of the day of our trial, the jury is sequestered. I intend that the entire matter be aired. I hope that some action on your part will proceed in such an unfortunate event. 
Thank you very kindly for your attention to this matter. I'll say this. I want this guy in my corner. Yeah, Because he's really this good. guy is you know, doing everything he can to make it obviously as fair and just as possible. This guy is going above and beyond. Right. I mean, I think it's important to mention that Bailey is saying, I don't want, I would, well, I would love to, in a courtroom, display all the fucked up shit that's happening right now in the state of New Jersey, but I'm going to save the taxpayers money. And why don't we just use their money instead of trying these obviously innocent people? Let's investigate the prosecutors that you're paying. Right. Because they're doing something wrong here. Yep. That's crazy. Yeah. So just could you imagine just sitting at your desk and just in reading your that office letter <laughs> and just reading that letter to you know to the whole you know well what's interesting about that is that the governor is not the first person to receive the letter the media is really yes the media received this letter before the governor ever did further tainting the jury pool And they think that's the reason why Bailey sent out this letter, because he knew one of the 150 people who received this letter is going to give it to the media. And he needs the media on his side. Right. Because as of right now, it just seems like his client is involved in this wife swapping pornography counterfeiting ring. And he's he's guilty by association. But if he can switch it up and have the media see the corruption that's going on in the state of New Jersey. It takes the heat off of his client. Right. For sure. So yeah. that's, it's all in the timing. So it may seem like Bailey's doing this innocently, but he really knows the game. Right, right. In the letter, Bailey accuses the prosecutor, John Thevos and investigator Muccio of grave injustices, such as putting criminals on the stand to lie. He then states that Dowd and McGlynn, who were to take over the case from Thevos, Um, We're trying to actually solve this case and put everything in the right light, but then Thevos is going to come in and take it over again. This letter debacle that's going to go on is going to eventually lead to the removal of Bailey from the trial. Wow, that's not fair. (laughs) Well, what's happening is that they were ordered to not involve the media whatsoever in this trial. And in sending that letter to so many people, that's what Bailey inevitably did. I mean, he he knew that it was going to get out. It was obvious. Usually when a lawyer is going to send a letter like that, he's going to tell his team about it. So like he had a defense team because he covered, he was the one defending the Matziners, but there was other lawyers covering the other defendants. And he in reality should have asked them all first permission, but he did admit to the judge that he didn't ask their permission and that he you know, in a way, it was just so obvious that he wanted to involve the media that the judge said he couldn't trust him again. So the judge is going to oust him from the trial. Crazy. But now they've lost F. Lee Bailey as their defense attorney. But luckily, there was another attorney, uh, Joseph Affolito, who was assisting in the case, and he now is just going to easily take Bailey's place in the defense So another thing that's going to come from this trial is the fact that Dowd and McGlynn now have to step down as prosecutors and Thevos has to take over because because they had that conversation with F. Lee Bailey, they could possibly be called as witnesses for the trial. And if you're going to be called as a witness, you can't be a prosecutor or a defense attorney in a trial. So now 
John Thievos has to take over as the prosecutor, which really just hurts the defendants even more. And this whole thing is going to also postpone the trial even further, which isn't good for the clients. I mean, now at this point, it's two years since the murder had taken place. So the new attorney for the defense, the new lead attorney, is going to file a petition against Frank Davenport, who's the Passaic County Sheriff at the time. And they're stating that their clients are not receiving the rights of a speedy trial. And they've been wrongly accused, citing the prosecution does not have sufficient credible evidence to obtain a conviction. But this petition's denied. And it's kind of okay that the petition's denied. I think the lawyers just kind of want to get the idea out there that there's not enough evidence to support the case and that there is no speedy trial going on at all. The DeFranco case will finally be heard in the fall of 1968. It hit a New Jersey record calling 142 witnesses within the time span of the 86-day trial. One of the highlights of the case is when Jacqueline Natoli is on the stand and one of the defense attorneys, his name is Bruno Leoposi, he's going to discredit her during his cross-examination. He gets her to admit that she made up some parts of the story and that she completely made up the names of three mafioso counterfeiters. Oh my god. <laughs> this seems like a movie. I know. Do you want do you want me to tell you what the names oh, please, of these people please are? Please tell me the names. Please tell me the names. Phil the Gorilla. Oh my god. Steve the Greek. Okay. And Frankie T. Frankie T. Yeah. Wow. Sounds like a whole block in Queens. You're right. It is. <laughs> All defendants were acquitted of the murder of Gabriel Johnny the Walk DeFranco. So everyone is not guilty because nobody could believe Natoli because she was the only thing. She was the only piece of evidence that's going to connect them to these DeFranco murders. I mean, and that's insane. I mean, if you really think about it, none of the witnesses they had from start to finish were credible at all. Not even a little bit. Right. And now the... I just want to know who these other 142 witnesses are. And like what... You know, I'm, just, I'm assuming they're character witnesses. They probably had to call the neighbor that saw the murder but was unable to identify the car or the people leaving. I mean, the neighbor did say that three people did attack him, but... Right. Maybe it was too dark. Yeah. Oh, it was definitely too. It was one thirty in the morning. Yeah. So maybe they just didn't see... Yeah, you know, they couldn't make out facial details. Right. It was like an that. older neighbor. Right. So a year later, Natoli had to reprise her role as the eyewitness one more time for the trial of the Judith Kavanaugh murders. Now, the defendants in this case are Paul Kavanaugh, the two Matsoners, and Carney, uh, Vincent Carney. During this trial, Judge Gordon Brown is going to say to the jurors that their decision hinged on Natoli's veracity. He stated, if you are not satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Mrs. Natoli is telling the truth, then it is the end of the trial. You must acquit. The jury acquitted all defendants in the Kavanaugh case as well. So they, there was no evidence that they did it because the crime scene probably most likely is her car, which was on fire in Newark. Right. So they couldn't find any evidence. Like, there was no evidence anywhere about who murdered this woman. That's crazy. I mean, nothing at all. Right. The only thing connecting all of these people to the murders are Natoli and Lenny, who have both been... Well, Lenny's been proven a liar a little bit more than Natoli has, because 
he then he admitted, but then went against yeah, the fact that he admitted. Yeah, these witnesses aren't credible at all. Right. So a year later, John Thevos is going to lose his job for reasons unsighted. In 1975, uh, Joe Muccia was fired from his job when he was cited for failure to meet the standards of a highly skilled professional. What does that tell you? Yeah. So the two murders were not looked into again after these exhaustive trials, and the cases remain unsolved. The false witnesses and the cloudy accusations against those who were murdered and those who were accused make it really difficult to make sense of this crime. So what's hard about this case is that nobody's really talked about it before. It's kind of been kept really quiet because it's kind of murky, kind of involves the mob. So there's not a lot of theories that are out. There's actually no theories that are out there. So these are theories that we've just come up with in speaking to each other. And it's complicated because the first thing that you need to establish before you can establish any of these theories is what is the real relationship between these group of people? Because we were told by Muccio that they were part of this counterfeiting crew. But what if that's not true? Right, it could just be more lies. Right, so the whole thing we have to determine is how are these people connected? And it's very they're very loosely connected as per the trial and as per what the prosecution said. So my first question is, how did DeFranco and Carney, how did they know the Matsoners and the Kavanaugh's? Hmm. It doesn't seem to make, they seem to be from two completely different worlds. Like, it's not a stretch that Kavanaugh and Matsoner know each other, even though I think it's weird because... Like, as a truck driver, are you really hanging out with the owner of the company? Right. I mean, that's like the lowest guy on a totem pole right. to the top. You know, it's it's weird. But it's not, you know, it's not that far of a stretch. It's not that. It's, it's less of a stretch than their connection with the other two men. Right. I want to just go into how they connected them in the trial. So, like, what was said. Muccio is going to claim that DeFranco was feeding Matsoner information about the mafia it's for him to put in his newspapers. Right, a, a newspaper that no one would read. I mean, maybe it was different back in the 60s, but like I said before, I would not even pick up the newspaper that are in those mailboxes. <laughs> but, but what's questionable is he's a distributor, a printer. He's not in control of what gets written in those newspapers. So what does he care? Good point. And even... The most shady thing, I think, is that when DeFranco's body was found on his doorstep, guess whose phone number he had written on a piece of paper and put in his pocket? Who? Matsoner. Hmm. But if these two were so close and they're in a counterfeiting business, I wouldn't have his phone number in my pocket because I know the guy for so long. Yeah, but it's a little different back then. You know, you'd have to use those little rotary phones and you no. needed to have a phone book. <laughs> Now, I know that, but wouldn't you, like, have that guy's number in your phone book or something? Why would you have it on a piece of paper in your pocket? Maybe it was recently given to him before he was confronted and killed. But the mur- if the murder's taking place in October of 66, they've apparently been running this counterfeiting business prior to Kavanaugh's murder in February. So they've known each other for a long time. Why would he only just have the number in his pocket? 
It's a good question. I, and I don't know the answer to it. I think that what makes this case so difficult for even us to cover is that there's so many holes in the story. Like in the story, it's hard to really paint a picture. Right. I think maybe it could be two things. I think it could be either the indictments were coming through and he was scared. So Matzner's like, here's this number. Call me if they bring you in for questioning. Maybe that. Could be. Or someone is trying to make a connection between DeFranco and Matzner that doesn't exist. And they did it by putting his phone number in his pocket. Also a very good point. I mean, it could it could well be that, you know. Right. So that's so. that's how they tried to connect the two. Right. But I think understanding the involvement between those four people and how they were really connected is going to help explain everything. Because once you know that, you can understand everything. But now we can't know because Judith was murdered and DeFranco was murdered. And then they were murdered on purpose. Right. They definitely were. There was there was definitely motive involved. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, so do you want to get into what you think your theory is? It's a good one. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to lose anybody. But this is where I think. I think this is how this all went down. I think that Judith and Paul were small time, you know, involved in this counterfeiting, you know, debacle. So they were counterfeiters. I, I think so. I think they had some sort of involvement. You know, he was a truck driver. It's very possible that he could have been moving the material needed for doing counterfeiting for Matzner. That's another thing, a little tidbit, I think, that we okay. could also put into it as well. So, yeah, he was just a low totem pole truck driver, but maybe he was the only person that Matzner could, tr- uh, could trust with well, that. Well, also, it's like very... You wouldn't think the two of them are working together. Right, exactly. It's very it's incognito. Unlikely. yeah. Yeah. Um, also, I think that um, the reason why Judith was killed... She must have, you know, wanted to let all the secrets out of the bag. So she I think was pissed. She was pissed. You know, he was he was with a lot of women. She didn't like that. Yeah, maybe and all of a sudden Paul thinks he's this big time gangster now. Yeah. He's doing counterfeiting. He's having an affairs and she's like, Who the hell do you think you are? Right, and she wants to knock him down a peg. Right. So he she says to him uh, to Paul, Hey, I if you're gonna continue your shit, I'm gonna basically um, let all the secrets out, and tell. all you guys are going to be screwed. And then I think what happens then is now Paul goes to Matzner. Matzner, you know, is like, "What's going on?" He explains that his wife wants to kind of tell on everybody, and Matzner must get a middleman involved. Maybe there's somebody else that we just don't know that connects all four of these people together. Maybe Matzner is the one that gets this middleman involved. And gets... Maybe he just hires DeFranco. Uh, hires DeFranco. Or somebody else I was thinking was the police officer, the detective in this case. Jo- yeah, the sergeant. John DeGroote. Because you have to understand, she was found 100 yards from her home. Right. And her car was burned in Newark, New Jersey. I, I think it's very possible that she was pulled over in a car. By a police officer. By a police officer. Because... A regular pedestrian. The murder scene has to be her car. Absolutely, and a regular pedestrian doesn't have the resources that a a detective in Clifton Police Department would have. Mm -hmm. So she was probably sergeant. Sergeant, even right. So she was pulled over, okay, and killed. You know, later disposed of. Mm -hmm. A cop knows how to make a a crime look a certain way to kind of keep everybody off the trail. 
he right. also would be able to get away with well, also, moving a car. How hard was the Clifton Police Department looking for her? She's a hundred yards away from a freaking house. It right. takes you two weeks. The police didn't even find her. Uh, a, a woman walking her dog found her. Yeah. So, which even is more of the fact that he could have just been like, "Oh yeah, we looked over there already." Uh, there's nothing there. Right, there's definitely something shady happening. So he might have had an involvement. If he didn't actually do it himself, he had involvement to cover up the tracks of whoever Matzner must have gotten to do it. Yeah, well, Dorothy Metzner is later going to write a book. And in her book, she's going to kind of point the finger towards John DeGroote. Right. In doing so. And just so everyone knows the kind of backstory of it, a lot of people in the town of Clifton do think DeGroote is responsible for the murder. His family is also very well known within the town, very connected. And I think it that leads to his protection a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, because think about it. This sergeant is now accused of murder and he got no media attention. It was kept very quiet. Just like everything else that right. had to involve this case. So I think that uh, everyone was very hush-hush. Yeah. There's also, I mean, there's so many theories, there's so many different ways we can run with this. We could also say that we know Muccio's connection to Bazo and his connection through bigger things, bigger people involved in more higher up crime. Like maybe there's a bigger picture here and that Muccio, that maybe they were doing small time counterfeiting. And do you think that Muccio made them all take the fall? Take the fall for something bigger. It's possible. Once again, anything's possible they, here. Maybe they were just small-time counterfeiters, and they wanted to get involved more in the scene. And then as a message, they killed the two, two members of the gang, like this counterfeiting gang they have. That could be it, too, and Mucci was just covering for them all. It's true. Also, you, we could even put the theory out there for, every, uh, you know, if anybody else wants to try to figure this out. You know, he had lo- uh, Paul had lots of lovers. You know, it's possible that one of his mistresses... Uh, I like the way you say lovers. I know, I'm sorry. But maybe <laughs> maybe one of them did. Maybe one of them was involved, at least in Judith's, ki- Judith's killing. Yeah, like a, you know, you know a scorned like woman. A scorned woman. There's nothing worse than a scorned woman. No. So, you know, you never know. Yeah, you don't know what could... Because maybe the two murders are not related. Maybe the connection just happened because of coincidence or... Um, Maybe Paul had Judith murdered. Well, see, this is the thing. And DeFranco found out about it. Like, there's so many things yeah, that could happen. I don't believe in coincidence. I think, well, in this case, there's no way. But I think that I got something for you. Maybe they're not connected, but maybe the same detective, John DeGroote, fucked up both of them. Maybe. You know what I'm saying? Well, DeGroote was only involved in the Kavanaugh case. He was very early on because once he was implemented in the Kavanaugh murder... Then he had nothing to do with the investigation of the De- of the DeFranco murder because remember Natoli implemented him saying he staged the scene for right and I, and I understand what you're saying maybe he had no direct involvement but look you have cops detectives look they're all in the same department right you know somebody could you know DeGru could have been like hey uh, you know John Doe uh, you know I hear you're doing this case you know can you do me a little favor here and there. Right. You never know. Now or I know this. Don't sounds, disclose this. So this all sounds super. How like how to make a murderer? I know that that's what this sounds like, but it is clear through many newspaper articles, um, through books that were written, the corruption within the state of New Jersey, in particular Passaic County, during the 1960s and the early 70s, 
was extremely evident. Um, people were put on trial for this. Um, there were so many unsolved murders that took place in Clifton. And this is just one of them. This is something that is actually so bizarre. And it's just, I think it's baffling that nobody's ever really talked about this before. Yeah, no, I was actually pretty shocked about it as well. Yeah, especially because F. Lee Bailey was involved. I mean, yeah. for a little bit, but at least, I mean, it's not even known. That's why we're trying to get the word out. And these two people were murdered and nobody knows who did it. Well, it happens a lot more often than you think. I know. And there's just, I mean, there's so many theories that you could make with this case because it's different. It's not just like one murder happened at one time. You have to somehow make this timeline make sense, which you can't make sense of because this idea, like this dirty seed has been planted in your head by these two eyewitnesses, in air quotes, that are lying about everything. Right. It's a very interesting case. We really want to hear what you guys think about it. We haven't ever heard anyone talk about this case Right, and I think it would be cool. Uh, we would love for you guys to, you know, um, tell us what you think about this case uh, as far as your theories. Um, maybe uh, hit us up on Instagram, let us know, um, on, on Twitter. Twitter. Um, yeah, even you could even hit us up and leave comments on Audioboom if you like, whatever you'd like to do. So we just want to take some time out to send out some much-needed thank yous. First, we want to thank uh, Music and Glamour on Instagram for her kind words and the shout-out she gave us on her page also, and I I might be saying this wrong, and I'm really sorry if I do, uh, Zimbalina K on Instagram. Um, she recently gave us a tarot card reading, and it was crazy accurate and very, very much appreciated. So thank you again for that. And last, but definitely, definitely not least, we want to give a shout out to Amanda Lynn from Jacksonville, Florida. She's given us so much love and support, and we can't thank her enough. She's helping send us cases, and we've had some interesting true crime conversations. And right now, she's working to start a page for us on Facebook where we can discuss the cases we've talked about, talk about our theories, maybe talk about other cases. So we're really looking forward to that. Thank you so much for listening. There was a short period of time where we were actually on the iTunes list. Yeah, we actually got to uh, uh, rank four, uh, 40, we were, so that was really cool. So yeah, thanks for all your died. support. Yeah, I know, me too. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening. Uh, please give us a review if you like the show. All right. And we'll see you next week. Bye, guys.